Hey, it's Kathy. I'm so excited because, drumroll please, doors are officially open to my program, The Abundance Method. I have been wanting to put this program out in the world for two and a half years. I've been working on it behind the scenes, and this is my signature program. This is the program that is going to teach you the method, the framework for how to become a master manifester in your life. Why is that? Because everything is vibration. We live in a world that is atomic. That means the world is made of atoms, which is energy. 99.9% of every atom is energy and less than 1% particle. So in order for us to manifest in our life, we need to become the highest vibe possible and to sustain that. This program is going to show you how to meditate and how to set your day on the right track so that you have a practice that can help you project your amazing energy into the world, which will bend the 3D, which will help you manifest in ways that you won't even believe. This is a transformative live 10-week program. It is designed to help you on this journey of spiritual awakening. It's going to give you tons of tools. I'm going to show you how to change your energy, master the manifestation once and for all. This is the first program of its kind. We're actually trademarking all of this framework because it is something that is so unique. And I think you're going to be so excited about learning it. Also, there are some bonuses right now. If you sign up, you're going to get an exclusive podcast so that you can be listening to this program. If you can't make the live Zoom calls, we can give it to you on a track so that you can be listening to it like you do a podcast. Also, you're going to get a pack of 10 meditations from me. And you're going to be getting a training that I just gave a workshop called Permission to be Rich, one of the best workshops I've ever done, which you will love. And there is a platinum level to this program. If you choose the platinum level, not only do you get extra coaching calls with me, you also get extra mentor support, but this is really cool. You also get a retreat included. My retreats are normally $3,000. You will get the retreat for free included. Plus, You will get a front row seat at that retreat because you will be on the platinum VIP track at the retreat. All of this is here for you. I'd love to see you in this program. I want to see you tapping in, turning on to that electricity within you so that you can find your way to the life that you were born to manifest for yourself. You can join us now at kathyheller.com slash join. I cannot wait. Get on in there. See what all the excitement is about. It's going to be so much fun. You have to share your story because our stories matter. We matter and we have to find that value, that worth from within us. And we need to share our experiences, share our stories. We are more than October 7th. We're not victims. We are survivors. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. So for any of you that have been following me on Instagram, you've probably seen all the different things that I've been posting. And among those things, I've been sharing some of what's going on for me right now. Being a woman, being a Jewish woman, it is unspeakable. There are truly no words for the mass rape and horror that has now been evidenced and documented what's coming out of Israel. And it is just so incredibly painful to see the evidence and to read the detailed accounts of the survivors and also of people who witnessed what was happening to people who didn't survive it. And I bring this up because we all know the tale as old as time is um, hatred. And anti-Semitism is one of those hatreds that's, it's just always there somewhere. And it's been pretty difficult to not think about it as a human, as a person, as a mother. And so today you're going to hear a conversation I had with an incredible person, Ben Freeman, who happened to be in Los Angeles. I interviewed him in person. You're going to hear that interview today. Ben is an amazing person. He's an author. He's a leader. He's a thinker. He's an educator. He was raised in Scotland. He's proudly gay. He's proudly Jewish. He has so much knowledge of history, and he's been writing books about Jewish pride and He has a pretty amazing perspective 
and so much to share. And I'm so happy to, to share this interview with you today. We talked about what it means to be Jewish and what it means to have Jewish pride. We also talked about some misconceptions that are spread about Jewish people, about the Jewish story, reclaiming our story, how to have the courage to tell your story, and how to be proud of who you are. He's so kind and so wise, and I just really learn from him every time. So I thought this would be valuable and something good to share because I think that what is truly personal is also very universal. So without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Ben Freeman. Before I ask you the first question, in case people don't know you, just going to read quickly a little bit about who you are. He's a Jewish leader, clearly, a Jewish thinker, a Jewish educator. He's the founder of the modern Jewish pride movement. We'll talk about that a lot. A Jewish educator. He's the author of Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People and Reclaiming Our Story, The Pursuit of Jewish Pride. He is an internationally renowned gay Jewish author and educator focusing on Jewish identity and historical and contemporary Jew hatred. A Holocaust scholar for over 15 years, Ben came to prominence during the Corbin labor Jew hate crisis and quickly became one of the generation's leading Jewish thinkers and voices against Jewish racism. Thank you so much for being who you are. Before we dive into all of this, I want to know what is it from your earliest memories that imprinted on you this deep Jewish pride? So first of all, thank you for sitting with me. And for me, the thing growing up in Scotland, you can tell from my accents that I'm not from here. So hot. I'm really Keep talking. <laughs> I mean, I actually would say I'm not a fan of Scottish accents, but that's okay. It's okay that you guys are. The thing that I always understood crystal clearly was that we were different. You know, there were 5,000 Jews in Scotland when I was growing up, the whole country. Five Jewish families lived on my street. So I lived in a very Jewish area. But we knew very clearly that we were a minority. And it wasn't really good or bad. You know, this was, I'm 36, almost 37, so we're talking a while ago, so it wasn't necessarily the way it is now. So it was fine. We could be actively, proudly Jewish. But the thing that always struck me was that my parents had to work incredibly hard to instill a Jewish identity in us because we were such a minority. And I now have a huge amount of respect. Now, you know, you become an adult and you start to reflect on your upbringing and the hard time you gave your parents. And I'm sure I said to them, I want to go out with my friends on a Friday night. I want to do this. I want to do that. And they just wouldn't let me. And they said, no, we're Jewish. And I remember I was in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I was really annoyed because I was not classed as Benjamin. And I was like, it's my name. It's like what I was born to do. And there was a rehearsal after school on a Friday. And there was a boy called Douglas, which is a very Scottish name. His mother brought him fish and chips. And I love fish and chips. And actually, fish and chips are Jewish. The Sephardic Jews brought fish and chips from Spain and Portugal to England. So that is a, a, a nugget of information. And I went home being like, why didn't I get fish and chips? And my mom was like, because we're about to have Shabbat dinner. And we're going to have chicken soup and roast potatoes and stuffing and simis. It was very like the Ashkenazi fair. And I was always incredibly conscious of the fact that we were different. We spoke differently. We had different accents because in the UK, there's such a wide variety of accents and often it's per area. And the Jews lived in one or two areas. So we had similar accents. We had different values. We would do different things with our families. We ate different food. And I think that is what I understood so implicitly and why I've always felt comfortable with my Jewishness. And I think that there are communities, and I think there are communities in North America, you know, now is the time for us to have really honest conversations, not just North America, but also in North America, that have been frightened of our specificity, frightened of our difference. Because to be specifically Jewish can be a scary thing. We're having these conversations right now about how visibly Jewish we're going to be. That is the kind of common Jewish experience. But it's also wonderful because we are specific. We belong to an incredible, unique, specific civilization. We're just as different as the Arabs, the Chinese, the Russians, the French. The French are very specific. I always make that joke about the French. And you can't make that joke in Canada, though. 
That was in Canton. People were like straight faced. I was like, okay, wrong crowd. We're specific. You know, we have a language. I can check what's the date today. Today in the Hebrew calendar, it is the 26th of Cheshvan. We have our names. My name is Ben. That's a name that comes from the Levant, from the land of Israel. It's not a name from Scotland. It's so incredible because there is a direct line connecting us in this room in Los Angeles in 2023 to our ancestors that came before us three and a half, four thousand years ago. And it's not just the ancestral element, it's holistic. It is the culture, the food, the language, the prayer, the fact that we all face Jerusalem when we pray. All of this sets us apart and sets us as different. And we're not better, we're not worse, but we are different and we should honour it and we should celebrate it because it just is. It is a fact that Jews are a specific group of people. And I have to say, I've always understood that. It's beautiful to hear that background. And it's so obvious why your parents and the way that you grew up has made you exactly who you are, which is such a gift for all of us that you have that unique experience. I read an article once in the New York Times that said it was an interesting article. It said that the reason why Jews make such amazing artists, photographers, writers, playwrights, is because art is a commentary on society. And the article was saying that since Jews are always a little bit outside, they're never quite given the full sense of belonging, that they have often a commentary on society because they're always other. And I will never forget reading that because I thought that's really true. And I'm curious if you could speak to this because I think for some people, not for all of us, but for some people, we see the anti-Semitism that is surging right now as new. We don't recognize the context of how this has always been here. There's nothing new about it, but there was a maybe quieter sort of sense of it. And I'm curious, if, because this is your area of expertise, if you could just share what you know about anti-Semitism and what seems like an uptick might actually just be an exposure of what's actually been there. Can you just share a little bit of your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. It's always been there. It's always bubbling under the surface. And Jew hatred is not, you know, we like to talk about it per its source, right? We talk about it from the left or the right or the Muslim world or the Christian world. It is a kind of global societal issue. And I think it's better to look at it through its manifestations as opposed to its source. So I've identified four different manifestations. The first is economic libel. So the notion that Jews are obsessed with money. And what we have to do with all of these libels is look underneath, read the subtext. What are they actually saying about us? It's not just that we all want money, right? Everyone wants money, but we live in a capitalist world. We all want pay rises. It's not saying that. It's saying that we will do anything for a buck, including betray our friends. And this idea stems from the fact that Jesus or the Judas is supposed to have sold Jesus out for 20 or 30 pieces of silver. And then historically, we were funneled into professions that dealt with money. So we kind of became the face of financial services. But the really important thing to understand about the Jewish experience and also other communities experiences now also is that the ability to amass wealth does not actually protect you in the way that you think it might. The wealth that exists in the Jewish community today is one or two generations old because it's continually stolen from us. Holocaust survivors, refugees, immigrants from all over the world arrived in this country with less than nothing and they built themselves up, which is an incredible thing and actually gives me a huge amount of pride, but we're shamed for that. We're told, no, that is something you just have because you're Jewish that you don't deserve And what's more, you're nefarious. It's all about that kind of nefarious, evil tendency that Jews have, even with regards to resources. The next is blood libel. Blood libel was the historic idea that Jews purposefully murdered Christian children, usually sometimes Muslim, in those worlds, to use their blood in ritual. And that stems from the notion that the Jews murdered Jesus. Because who murdered Jesus? It was the Romans. But in 380 CE, something super uncomfortable happened and Rome converted to Christianity. So they were now loving Jesus, but just 350 years earlier, they were crucifying him. 
so they had to find a new culprit. So they blamed the Jews. And that set in motion these ideas that Jews are bloodthirsty, that we will purposely bomb hospitals to murder people, that we are seeking to murder Palestinian children. I mean, think about that accusation. And it's so freely expressed, but it's extraordinary to accuse a democracy of purposely murdering children is an outrageous thing to say. It's not true. But the thing that we will understand about all of these libels is they have nothing to do with our reality. They actually focus on a mythical boogeyman called the Jew. The issue is that we're real Jews. Then you have conspiracy fantasy, and that's always been a part of it. Like the idea that Jewish communities in England were getting together and being like, okay, guys, which Christian kid are we going to kill this week? That's a conspiracy. But also today, Jews control the media, the wars, the government. Jews caused COVID. Jews control the weather. It's like, I'm from Scotland. Let me tell you, we don't control the weather. This is much more pleasant. And then the last is racial libel. And this is a very important form of Jew hatred or expression of. And it's the notion that Jew hatred is a form of racism. And sometimes people maddeningly say, well, how can Jew hatred be a racism when Jews are not a race? As a non-American, obviously, I would say there is no such thing as race. We should drop that as a categorization. It was created by racists. It is insane to me. I mean, really, it, it makes absolutely no sense that that's still a categorization that we would use because it was not created to identify differences. It was created to put people in boxes and to segregate us. And Jews actually were one of the first people to be racialized. There's an Asian American professor called Dr. Geraldine Heng, and she estimates that the first racist state in the West was England in the Middle Ages in the 12th century, and she says it targeted Jews. So we've been racialized for a really long time. It took on a new face in the 19th century with the rise of pseudoscience. And that's when like racism and the way that we understand it today kind of emerged. But we have to understand that because it is all of this stuff. So whether it's economic blood conspiracy, these are ideas imposed onto us. And we as Jews express them inherently because we are Jews, right? That's what they say. You are a Jew, therefore you're untrustworthy. You're a Jew, therefore you are obsessed with money. You're conspiratorial. You have a big nose, X, Y, or Z. And what we're seeing now is a modern manifestation of these ancient ideas. And the thing about Jew hatred is it's always evolving and it's always shape-shifting to fit the zeitgeist. So after 1948, we lived in a world once again, thankfully, with a Jewish state. So of course, Jew hatred was going to evolve to target the state of Israel. And actually, when you kind of lay it all out and you look at the history, the 2,000-year-old history of Jew hatred, you're like, yeah, well, obviously this is happening. Not that we deserve it. We've done nothing to deserve this. This is an outrageous crime against our humanity. But there has been a pattern. And after the Holocaust, there was this moment where the world said never again. And I think many of us would argue, I certainly have, that that was a lie. They didn't mean that. But there was a lull. But we have to start understanding our experience with a bit more objectivity. And I think actually the 7th of October illuminated this. The world, for a brief moment, was outraged. Real outrage, real horror. Friends of mine who are allies, but, you know, not necessarily that political, were completely horrified. But outrage is not the same as allyship. Outrage isn't necessarily the same as caring about Jewish people. We saw the same after Kristallnacht. Today's the 10th of November. It's the 85th anniversary of, of the November pogrom, Kristallnacht. After Kristallnacht, the shops and the Jewish-owned shops were, had been destroyed, the synagogues burned, some 99 Jews had been murdered, and the German non-Jews were outraged because they said, we don't behave like this. We're not going to deal with this problem in this way. We're Germany, we're civilised. It's not about allyship. So after the Holocaust, when there was real shock, real shock and horror, because just because you hate Jews doesn't actually mean you want 1.5 million Jewish children to be murdered or 6 million Jews to be murdered in total. That is still a leap. So the world was horrified. But they didn't care about Jews. It never went away. Nothing changed. And that is where we are today. We see open, overt, gleeful Jew hatred being expressed in the streets of cities that we never thought that would have been possible. And it's happening because the world 
hates Jewish people. And that is not to say it's every non-Jewish person. Of course, my partner isn't Jewish. We do have wonderful allies. But we're talking about something much bigger than all of us in this room and actually non-Jews. It's the worlds which govern us, the culture, the ideas. And my dad used to say this to me. It's the first quote. The first line of my first book is the non-Jewish world hates Jews. And my father, who was born in 1932, he had me when he was 55, would always say to me, you've got to remember this. And I would say, no, dad, things have changed. You're wrong. Boy, was I wrong. There's a quote actually by a Nazi, and he said that if you tell a lie once, people can find out that it's a lie. But if you tell a lie a thousand times, people will start to believe that it's the truth. And in speaking with people, my friends that are Jewish even, they literally have heard the lies coming out for the last many years about Israel. They don't even themselves know that they're lies. So I've said to them, do you know why in 1948 there was a partition plan? It's because Jews lived there and Arabs lived there, and then they partitioned it. They themselves didn't realize not only that we're indigenous to this land, but that we've always had a presence there and that there were always Jews in the Middle East, in Syria and Lebanon and Iran, obviously, and in Israel proper, right, at the time. And because you've studied the Holocaust in such detail, what do we need to understand about what are the blatant lies that we need to understand that are everywhere right now? and what do we need to sort of prepare ourselves for so that we don't wind up making this 1939? We have to very firmly, but very respectfully, define our own identities and tell our own stories. And actually, I think one of the greatest tragedies of Jew hatred is that we believe it. Because in a sense, you know, my therapist once said to me, it's none of your business what people think about you. And actually, if they're over there thinking what they think, okay, fine. We care how they impact us, what they do to us. But if that impact is lessened, then you can't change people's opinion necessarily. But the greatest tragedy is that we have absorbed it. And that's what this book is about, the internalization of anti-Jewishness. And yes, there are many Jews who just do not know. And the problem is, is that this is a real subject. The Holocaust, the history of Israel, the history of Jews... You know, of course, we have Torah as a perspective, and I would argue actually the Torah is a historical document, and a lot of it's true. But the amazing thing is there's also archaeology in the ground that we can touch, which proves everything you've just said. We are indigenous to that land. It is our indigenous land, and we were rooted there for 4,000 years, and we continue to be so. But we need to know this story. We need to know that the first mention of the word Israel was on an Egyptian engraving from 3,200 years ago, and it's called the Merneptah Steli, and they talk about us. And yes, they are admittedly celebrating defeating us in battle, but they mentioned us. So by 3,200 years ago, we were established enough to warrant a mention. And then we had tribes, and then there was a united monarchy with King Saul, David, or kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Then there was a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah, which is where the word Jew comes from. And then the bunch of people came in and we had another brief moment of sovereignty with the Hasmoneans. And I would say they were a bit rubbish, but they still regained sovereignty. And there was always a Jewish presence in the land. And we've always called ourselves Am Yisrael. And we've always prayed towards Jerusalem, whichever direction we're facing from the world. But we have to understand our story and tell it and contextualize it. So that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we know who we are. We need to make sure that we can withstand the pressure that's coming at us from the wider world because it's coming and it's been coming. And then with regards to what we do to avoid mistakes of the past, I was once told the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior and we should not trust the world. And to quote Madai Moody from Harry Potter, I'm a big Harry Potter nerd, constant vigilance. And I think the tragedy, actually, of the North American Jewish experience was an idea that Jews in this part of the world had made it. The Europeans never felt like that. The Brits, we felt it more than the Europeans, but certainly less than the Americans. And there were Jews in America who really thought, wow, 
We have made it. We're the ones who have overcome this 2,000-year-old scourge. And I think because of the specific context in this country, there were Jews here who forgot that they were Jews in a global sense, in a historical sense, right? It became about, okay, I'm an American Jew. This is my experience. But actually, even if things were fine in America, but in Britain we were being targeted, it's not fine for Jews in America because we're a family. And the problem of one Jew in one place is the issue of a Jew in another place. Like, we're a family, we have to stand together. But it was always going to be coming here. And what we're trying to do with these events, with these conversations, is activate people, is switch people on, is wake people up, is intervene. And that's why working with young people, we have a young lady at the back, hello. That's why working with young people is so important, because we're not intervening. We start young, we instill pride, we teach them our story, but we have to wake up. We have to wake up to the reality of what it means to be a Jew. And I don't say that with any glee. We shouldn't be consumed by anger, but we should be driven by it. And we should understand that above all else, we are Jews in the negative aspect and how we are treated, but also in the positive aspect. I am a Jew before I'm anything else, before I'm Scottish, before I'm British, before I'm gay, before I'm European, I'm a Jew. And I think that we should all be Jews, at least joint first. If you really feel connected to America or wherever country you happen to be from, great. But we should not be punting our Jewishness down our hierarchy of identity. And that is how we prepare. Because ultimately, we can't control their actions. But if we're awake, if we're vigilant, if we're strong, if we're proud, we can withstand it and we can spot it. Because we're not going to be in a situation like we were before. And actually, there's one major difference. We have Israel. We have a state which is strong and powerful and successful. And we built that three years after the Holocaust ended. It is built by refugees from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Spain, Portugal, from the former Soviet Union. These people, our people, went to that land which was our land, and we were willing to share it. And the other side said no. And we built a thriving democracy. And it's incredible. And that is why our situation as Jews is unique for 2,000 years. Because no other Jewish community has had this safety. And not actually just a safety net, because I don't think we should speak about Israel in just that way. Israel is a real thriving place with 9 million Israelis. It's not just our safety net for for Jews in the diaspora. It's also our home. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to celebrate it. We have to honor it. And that should also alleviate some of the anxiety that we're feeling. Because we are rooted in a place which is real and we have sovereignty over that place at the moment, which is incredible. But also it's strong. And it's powerful. And that should make us feel strong and powerful. We're not going to be in the diaspora If we choose to stay here, we're not going to be here being weak. We're not Jews with trembling knees, even when we live here. We're strong, proud Jews. We deserve the right to move through the world as proud Jews without having to make these adjustments. We know that that's not necessarily the case, so we have to respond to our reality. But we never let their hatred infect our perceptions of ourselves. We only see our Jewishness as a source of pride and never shame. You know, you mentioned a few really important things and you talked about, you mentioned the word democracy. And I'm curious, specifically from your perspective of being somebody who's so proudly Jewish and also you're a person who's gay and openly gay. And, you know, I say to people, my friends who are Muslim, my hairdresser grew up in Iran. She grew up Muslim. She converted to Christianity. She married an Armenian man who's Christian. And for years now, we've been watching the women in Iran, Muslim women in Iran, screaming for the world to hear what it's like to live under a radical regime. I have a friend from Pakistan, which, by the way, talk about occupation. Pakistan is stolen from India, and that is like blatant occupation, okay? She has told me for years that women in certain parts of Pakistan can't leave their homes, and that nine-year-old girls are married off. And the degree of poison that is in some of these societies is hard for us to wrap our minds around. So what becomes really disturbing is when I see people 
who identify themselves as very progressive, who are fighting against these women in Iran, which they don't realize they're fighting against them now. But what do you, as a person who's proudly Jewish, proudly gay, make out of what's happened to the far, far, far left, which doesn't seem to make any sense? No, I mean, to be glib, these are the dumbest people in the world. You've heard it here. The gays for Palestine? I find that to be so offensive. Because not only is it a lie that Israel is this monster, but what these LGBTQ plus people are doing is condemning their own, their own people in Palestine to more torment, to more murder, to more oppression. And I find it to be despicable. And they all have blood on their hands. There was a young Palestinian man who sought asylum in Israel and he was kidnapped back to the West Bank, and he was beheaded. This was this year. And all of those queers for Palestine said nothing. It makes me angry beyond belief, because Tel Aviv is the place that I, as a gay Jew, feel most at home in the world. Obviously, the first drag show I went to was in Tel Aviv. It is an amazing place, Israel, and it's not perfect. And there's ways it has to go, but every democracy has ways to go. Let's not be naive to think America or Britain are completely wonderful for LGBTQ plus people either. My partner and I don't hold hands in London because homophobia is quite bad there. Every country has issues, but Israel is a thriving democracy. Even the fact that we had 100,000 Israelis every week for like 40 weeks protesting against the government, that is an indication that it is in fact a democracy because they were allowed to do that. And the queers for Palestine and the feminists for Palestine, in a sense, they have been completely brainwashed. They're supporting these regimes because they view them through this warped, binary, immature, underdeveloped, often racist perspective that these groups are colonized. And they are condemning really marginalized groups, really vulnerable groups to a life under these regimes. If you are really pro LGBTQ plus rights or women, or if you are really pro-Palestinian, you would be advocating to free Gaza from Hamas. It's such an important thing for you. Like God perfectly made you in every way that you are, as uh, Mordechai says to Esther, for such a time as this. Because where you sit and how you see the world, you can speak in ways that make such an imprint because of your lived experience on all these levels. And it's so courageous and gorgeous that you choose to use your voice. So thank you, because it's so important right now. You know, with seeing all of the things that you've just been saying, and all of, it feels like a twilight zone. I, I feel like I'm literally living in the twilight zone. And we had Shabbat dinner last week with our Iranian friends, and they brought over a friend of theirs who are Hindu and they live there from India. And they were saying that the reason that they're supportive of Israel is because they've been watching what's been happening as radical regimes have come in to torture Hindus in India. And I don't think people have much knowledge of, of many things. I'm sure there's so many things about the world I don't know. But I don't think people realize that there isn't a single democracy anywhere else besides Israel and the Middle East, which is really important that we understand that there was a time where, since Judaism came first, and then there was Christianity, and then there was Islam, there was a time where these countries looked very different, and they weren't run by radical regimes. And so what do we need to be saying? What do we need to be doing in order for us to not see those regimes have more success and take over places like Britain or take over places like the US? I think that those of us who live in the West, in what we would deem to be the liberal world, have to understand that we have to defend liberalism. And I mean real liberalism, because actually the queers for Palestine, they're not liberals. Because actually to be a liberal is a good thing, I think. They're not liberals. They are regressive. They are totalitarian, actually, in their own way. 
in the West, we have to understand that we have to defend liberalism. And I really, you know, I think now is the time for, t- for us to have honest conversations. And I can tell you a brief anecdote. So I worked in Hong Kong for six years and I moved there in 2015, just after the Syrian refugee crisis. And the European response, specifically German and Austrian response, it's kind of farcical in a way, but they were making amends for the Holocaust by allowing Syrian refugees in. So never again actually doesn't necessarily mean never again for us. It's not really about Jews. So they took this message. And the reason I say that is because I had conversations with the Austrian consul general who wrote me an email that said, I'm so glad that we're now on the right side of history because we're letting all these people in. And for sure, there were refugees. There was a terrible conflict in Syria. People needed support, needed help. But there was no recognition that these were people who came from a radical regime. And while they deserved love and compassion and support, we also needed to support them. And actually the failing is on us. We needed to support them as they came to Europe and they integrated. And what we've seen is that that did not happen. There was no support. There was no integration. There isn't even actually a record of the number of people who came because there really was in Germany and Austria an open door policy. And, you know, don't get me wrong. We are all here because we're the descendants or we are ourselves refugees. So I believe in supporting people. I believe in giving people opportunity, particularly when their lives are in danger. But we didn't remember that we have to defend liberal Western values and that actually to be importing people who are anti-gay, anti-Jewish, anti-woman, anti-democracy is going to have an impact unless you do real work. And I was at an event in Hong Kong to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the creation of diplomatic relations between Israel and Germany. And there was a Czech Jewish professor who said to the German consul, what are you doing about the fact that you've absorbed all of these people? And the German consul said, yeah, I don't know. You're right. And we don't know. And that's been the issue. We should be societies where people are able to express their identities, express their country of origins, but we actually should expect people to integrate. And integrate's not the same as assimilate. We shouldn't assimilate. We are Jews. We're not going to shed what makes us specific. But we should integrate. You're, I imagine, American. I'm British. I dress like a British person. I shop for clothes like a British person. You know, I'm wearing a trench coat in LA. And the way I speak, the way I express myself, I always say to people with all due respect. And when a British person says that, it means zero respect. So be on guard for that. We are socialized into the countries in which we live, obviously. You are American. You vote in American elections. I vote in British elections. We're active participants in these countries and we're proud Jews. We don't need to choose. But unfortunately, for some communities, I think, particularly communities that arrived laterally, there has not been that same understanding that, no, we need you to be part of our society. We want you to be. You can't come and be separate. And of course, there is a process You know, my great-grandmother who arrived from Belarusia, she didn't speak English. She she spoke Yiddish and Hebrew. Her sons, my grandfather, he learned English. So we should be expecting this process to continue. And when you come to live in America or Britain, number one, you should feel privileged to live in these countries because they are Western liberal democracies for all their flaws. They're still a damn sight better than the countries we were just describing in the Middle East and other places. And you should understand that the values here are the values here. And again, it's not that we're perfect. We have long ways to go. But yes, we are working to make our societies safe for LGBTQ plus people, safe for women, safe for Jewish people, hopefully, although that is that seems to be questionable right now. But when you come to live here, you should respect those values and you should be expected to respect those values. And actually, it's like, you know what? It's like I said earlier, none of your business what anyone thinks about you. If someone goes into their home and thinks, ah, those damn Jews. Okay, like that's not very nice, but don't take it to the street. Understand the the, the faces that we all have to wear when we move through the public. And we can't just actually sit and blame other people. What did we not defend? What did we not take care of? What values were we willing to see go by the wayside? And it is an important moment. I think it's an important moment in the history of the West. How are we going to respond to this? 
how are we going to keep our liberalism? You know, we're not going to become totalitarian because that's a very easy thing to do. When you defend something, you want to be strong and sometimes you can go too far. We must be careful not to do that. But we should defend what makes the West the West, what makes the West great, what makes the West places that we all want to live. And we should not allow it to be taken over by any radicals. And it's radicals from any community, but we should reject radicalism. And we're not going to use buzzwords. We're not going to be having narratives. We will tell the truth. And truth is actually on our side. Such powerful words. For everybody who's here and anyone who will listen to this, um, since you're such a activist for Jewish pride, I want to know what you think is our best move in terms of what to share, what to post. All of us, most of us have social media accounts. And sometimes it feels like you can't go to sleep at night unless you've said something today, but you don't quite know what is going to fall on deaf ears or what to say. And there's moments where you say to yourself, well, I could remind the world that Israel offered the Palestinians a state multiple times, which they always rejected. I could remind the world of this, of that. And it seems, it seems like that's never the move. And so then there's other times where I've been like, oh, I'll, I'll just share what's beautiful about being Jewish. I'll share the fact that Jews don't actively go converting people because we believe that all people are already intrinsically connected to goodness. And we just want people to follow basic laws, right? To not kill, not steal, and you're good. And then I think, but what really is the move? Like, I'm not satisfied going to sleep at night, and I'm sure a lot of us feel this way, where we don't feel like we've contributed. And I think as somebody who's, you know, not only Jewish, but gay, you've gone through the process of having to be out. And there is so much courage that you've had to deploy over and over again in your life. What are the things that you've learned from your own courage? And what do you think is most impactful? Because I think sometimes not only do we not know, I think what you could also speak to is we don't think it makes a difference. So it's like, well, I feel like I should say something, but does it really make a difference if I do? And I don't know what to say. So how can we have courage and know what to do? It absolutely makes a difference. There is such value in this conversation in speaking to Jewish people, right? People often say to me, well, your work, you mostly speak to Jews. It's an echo chamber. It's like, yeah, but don't we deserve empowerment? The things that I think we should all be sharing, your story, you have to share your story because our stories matter. We matter. And we have to find that value, that worth from within us. And we need to share our experiences, share our stories. We are more than October 7th. We're not victims. We are survivors. We are resilient. And there's this old adage, right? They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. It's not true. They tried to kill us. We survived because we made it so. We thrived. Now let's eat. The last thing that I'll say, and that was so beautiful, and it is empowerment. That's what you do. Like you're literally a Wi-Fi signal of empowerment, which is such a gift. The last thing I'll just say is that, you know, people talk about monotheism and that Abraham sort of was the first person to have this, this idea, which was pretty radical at the time. And what I don't think people get about the depth of Abraham's vision is that when we say our central prayer, which is Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad, which means God is one, what Abraham is saying is that it's all oneness, that the world is made of this one divine infinite field. And we're all one. And when you go to a planetarium, which we, we did recently with the girls, you see that everything is this one geometric pattern. And even our bodies, when we sleep at night, are tracking the circadian rhythm of the planets and the moon, the stars, because everything is one. And therefore, the goodness and the blessing and the expanded consciousness that is Judaism was intended for the world as a lens in which to see all of humanity as one. That is worth fighting for. That is the definition of liberalism and democracy, that every single instrument in the orchestra is unique and yet is all part of one beautiful 
musical inspired symphony that we as a people, as a world, make up that oneness and that each then is inherently exactly as it's supposed to be, as each piece of the puzzle fits the whole puzzle. And I think that we forget that the world on some level is begging us to be louder with the principles and the vision that is Judaism, the way that we see the world. And so I hope that we will be empowered and inspired. And when you write your books, and this is the last question, when you write your books and when you go to sleep at night and you do your posts, what is the thing that you are wanting to leave people with? Like, if there's one thing that you feel like allows you to feel like you've done your job, what is it that you want people to really receive? I want Jews everywhere to, and I said it before, see their Jewishness as a source of pride and never shame and to feel it and to live it and to know it and to move through the world feeling confident, to move through the world with your head held high, feeling part of this incredible, beautiful civilization that continues to thrive, continues to inform. That's what I want. And that to me, I mean, it is to be a writer is quite solitary. Like I write from my bed, you know, people have these like ideas that you go to a desk. It's like, I do not. I wear a dressing gown. I like have my knees propped up. I write from my bed. It's very studious and very unglamorous. But you spend a lot of time by yourself. And that's why these tours are a gift because I get to go and meet people and I get to be inspired too. Your courage inspires me. Your pride empowers me. And that's what we're doing. We're just constantly inspiring and empowering and educating one another. And that's why it is important because, as, as I said, we do matter. But I want us to throw off the yoke of shame. I have felt so much shame in my life and it kills you and it literally kills people. And we have to say, no, we're not ashamed. We're proud. We know who we are. We know our story. We will tell you what our identity is with all due respect. You will not tell us. And we will move through the world, however we choose to, as strong, proud Jews with our heads held high, knowing our intrinsic worth. Tell everybody where they can follow you on Instagram and where they can get your books besides over there. So you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, and it's at Ben M. Freeman. The M is super important because there's like a hundred Jewish Ben Freemans. So you will land up on someone else's page. I have a very severe picture that it was probably a misstep. I'm wearing a blue shirt that matches the color of that book. And the books are available on Amazon. And there's the second book is available here. The first book is a white book. I talk about them as the blue and white books. The first book is a white book. It's called Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People. And the second book is Reclaiming Our Story. And it's a deep dive into internalized anti-Jewishness. So it actually deals very specifically with what we're seeing right now, although it was published a year ago. But thank you so much for having me. I want to say it's a real honor to be at this synagogue. To be at Stephen Weiss is really an important achievement for me. You know, I've been all over this continent, as I keep saying, and I would, people are like, oh, where's your last stop? And I tell them, people are like, oh, that's good. So thank you so much for having me. And thank you to you. That was a really powerful conversation. And here are the takeaways. Number one, we're not better, we're not worse, but we're different and we should honor it. We should celebrate it because it just is. Number two, it's none of your business what people think about you. Number three, tell the truth. The truth is actually on your side. Number four, it's all oneness. We're all one. The world is made of this one divine infinite field. Number five, the goodness, the blessing, the expanded consciousness to see all the humanity, to see all of humanity as one, that is worth fighting for. Number six, throw off the yoke of shame and be proud of who you are. No one can tell you your identity. And number seven, we will move through the world however we choose with our heads held high, knowing our own intrinsic worth. Thank you for listening to this show, to every show. I say it every week, but I really mean it. I'm so appreciative that you're here. And I will continue to try every episode to bring you conversations that I think on some level they relate to all of us because they help us to be authentic. They help us to have courage. And I think that this conversation is no different. We have so many good episodes coming up. So please follow along wherever you're listening, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else. And if you're a fan of the show, 
and you want to leave us a review, that really helps. If you can think of someone who would like this episode, go ahead and share the link. And I just want to say how much I appreciate this community. I've gotten so much support in my DMs, literally so much support. And it means so, so much to me. There's so much I could say on this topic. And I will continue to look for what I think are the most helpful pieces and, and however I think I can shine a light on, on whatever we all might be feeling any good that I can do. I will be thinking about who might be helpful. In fact, I reached out to this incredible woman who's an activist. She's from Iran. She's just an amazing person who speaks on behalf of all women and women's rights and. I'm going to have her on soon and I look forward to that conversation as well. So I appreciate you guys being along for the ride as we continue to have different conversations with different voices to help us to fully understand the scope of the world we're all living in because we're all in it together in this world. I love you so much. I'm so grateful for you. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend. When you're far from home When the